When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Weiss, writer of The Athletic, focuses on the Boston Celtics, and appropriately, this podcast is focused on the Boston Celtics. Go through a lot of different topics, including the evolution of their season, their viability in the playoffs, the Tatum-Brown pairing, adding Derek White, a lot of different threads, runs just about an hour. Hope you really enjoy it. And this podcast is brought to you by Bet Online. Use that CLNS50 code for a 50% welcome bonus. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, I couldn't remember when the last time I was here. I guess it was when the Celtics were still bad, but apparently that's not the case anymore. It appears to not be the case anymore. And that's actually where I wanted to start is... How would you describe not only the evolution of the season, but also something that as a, you know, as somebody who's more of a national person, the evolution of the way people like Celtics fans have thought about this season, which is also fascinating. Yeah, I guess it was probably good that the Celtics didn't cave into the calls for Ime Odoka to get fired after a month, because it seems like he's probably a pretty solid coach at this point. But this team... This team is weird because they've been, whenever we push them on the, like, why are things better now, they got to just push to team is healthy, continuity, stuff like that. And sure, that is that is certainly probably 51% of it, but I do think 49% of it is that they, they figured out their system eventually and guys started playing. I think it was that guys started playing around the Jays better, more clearly, had a better understanding of what to look for. The Jays then started passing the ball more, passing the ball better. There was just finally offensive cohesion. And then also just their defense has been so good against this kind of weak schedule that they've been facing that they're able to play in transition so much more and they're able to just create easier looks for themselves so much more. Right. And the idea that successful defense can fuel offense has been true for a long time. It just, you, you, when you play less offense in the half court, and you play more in transition, things are going to work out better. And I do think that being healthier has helped. I mean, another part of it, I was just, I used January 1st as kind of like the, as, as a dividing line. The Celtics were 20th in offense at that point in the season, and we wondered how things were going to go, and they were still doing well defensively. They've done better since. I believe they've been the number one defense in the league per quitting the glass since January 1st. But They've, they've improved on both ends. We've also seen Jason Tatum had a rough start to the year, and he's played. He, he's making more shots, but I would also argue he's just played better overall. And availability is an important part of the story. And, I mean, that's been 
such a key to the NBA this whole entire season. I mean, thankfully, we seems like we're pretty far past the protocol days. I mean, Devin Booker went into them yesterday, but generally speaking, we're not in that circumstance as much anymore. So I think that is a part of this remembering. But I think also, like, at a basic level, and I, it was interesting, Nate and I did a gamer on that Celtics Hawks game where, where it was like they were so they were rough in the early going. Atlanta was making shots. They were doing a tough job with Trey Young, and then they tightened up. And I I thought their defense has been markedly better in the more recent stretch as well. Yeah, I, I think you got to go back to New Year's Eve against Phoenix, where Phoenix came to town. They were healthy except for Aiton. Although that game, Jalen Smith played really well. People have heard me talk about this before. I've, you know, they've heard this one before. But that was the day where we saw them just kick Phoenix's ass out of the gate and actually hold on to it pretty well. And they played a different style of basketball that day. They had Rob Williams playmaking out of the high post. Phoenix was switching, so they were doing they were giving the bigs the ball and then having their wings and guards do split actions to create some confusion and cut off of that. And I think that was the day that we saw that this team has flexibility to it. And what really defined this team the first couple months of the season, and even last season, was predictability. And I think it was Joel Embiid said earlier in the year that the Celtics' offense at crunch time was too pred- it was predictable because they were running isolation through the Jays the entire time, essentially. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't we haven't really seen that crunch time offense get tested consistently because they've been winning so easily so much right. of the time and they haven't been facing too many bad teams and or good teams. And really, at the beginning of the year, they were flawed. But in general, if they weren't having these epic collapses at the end of games, they actually would have been towards the top of the East already. And right now, with the way they're playing, they would have been in probably in first place at this point. So maybe I, I think maybe the fundamental issue that plagues this team and that limits this team's ceiling is maybe still there. And, you know, they face Memphis the, the night that we're recording this. And that's going to be in a pretty, pretty incredible test of how how resilient their offense is going to be in crunch time. But Basically, that was the first day that we saw that it looks like one of the team's strengths is going to be a strength that had back when Brad Stevens was the coach and they had a competitive team was they were very flexible and they, you know, they built the team off versatility and their game plans were versatile and they adapted who they were a lot of the time. And they've been doing that pretty well, whether it's changing up some of their defensive coverages, reshaping their offense on a nightly basis. Jason Tatum has gotten really good at attacking different coverages, and he's gotten that. He finally has control of the ball and and, and a reading of the floor sufficient enough that he could pretty much operate in a different style against every type of defensive scheme. And so, you know, that last Atlanta game was a great example of that one where they were sending doubles to him. He wasn't really panicking for the most part. He was kind of holding his ground, being very patient, and then just passing out of it pretty easily. And that was how they won the game. But so, you know, Boston, ever since then, they had, after the Phoenix game, they had a bad week. They had that huge collapse against New York and MSG. That was the turning point when Yumi Odoka started playing Grant Williams or Josh Richardson at the end of games. They had shooting out there. They finally were spacing the floor properly and they were winning. They were closing out. They started moving away from Dennis Schroeder once they once Marcus Smart came back from an injury. And that I think that made a huge difference for them because Schroeder took a ton of pace out of it. Uh, his defense was a little bit up and a little bit. It was very up and down. He you know played with blinders on a lot of the time. They they just they pretty much now almost always have the ball in the hands of somebody who's looking to move the ball. And 
their defense is pretty much rock solid like, across the board with all the lineups they're throwing out there. So they, this team, they don't have the extreme potency that some of the other contenders have, but they finally have the consistency that they've been lacking. I thought a great example of a lot of those different elements was what happened in the, I guess you could say it started in the second quarter, but really for me, the second half of that game against the Hawks, where the offense was sputtering a little bit. They were also having more trouble defensively than usual. And so part of what Ime Udoka did was put the ball in the hands of Derek White. And I think White having another capable creator, somebody who makes good decisions, who isn't necessarily like the most dominant scorer, but is a capable, aggressive driver and can make the right decision. Having another player like that on the floor already is making a difference. And I think once he is more fully integrated, will make an even larger difference. Yeah, he... White's just one of those guys that's subtly good at most of the things you need him to do, except for shooting uh, from deep. But he... He, his his uh, scoring package is kind of limited. He has an early pop floater. He can fight his way to get off like a clean textbook layup. He's got a little bit of a mid-range pull-up game, but he's not someone that's, that you're trying to get buckets from, except for at the end of the third quarter in that Atlanta game. He, was, he had a really nice run there, but in general, White is just that second side glue guy. He right. is the person that swings the ball. He's the guy that keeps keeps getting himself into position or cutting to be in the right spot. He's doing a lot of what they were hoping Romeo Langford would be able to do, and then they ended up trading Langford for White because Langford just wasn't panning out yet. And maybe he will one day, but it's not happening year three into his career. And so White just he shows up just ready to do all those things. And the team definitely seems like it's been better since he got to Boston. Um, they just ha- they haven't really had too many tests, so it's like this little stretch where they're facing Memphis, Brooklyn's going to have KD back. It's like these are the games where we're finally going to really see that test. I looked it up going back to something we talked about a little bit earlier. Boston is currently 23rd in clutch offensive rating. And as you mentioned, they haven't had as many close games when they've been playing this well. 101 per 101 points per 100 possessions. That is narrowly behind the Detroit Pistons. And some of the teams that are actually behind them are ones that we wonder about as, you know, in their some of their crunch time efficiency of the Miami Heat, who had that clutch collapse against the Bucks the day before we recorded this, the Hawks, the Knicks. And so and of course, the Pacers, because the Pacers are just spectacular at losing close games this year. So that is a concern, but I think they have a better balance now. I think that there are more ways to do it. And then the other part of it, Boston has... I think they're so their clutch defensive rating is around middle of the league. I think they're a better clutch defense than that. And so that's, you know, when you're narrowing the sample to more of the early part of the year, I think they've gotten better on both ends to the point that we're not seeing as much of it in the sample. Yeah, I mean, since that game against the Knicks in early January, they've only had six clutch games, which I think is the least in the league. And they're four and two in those games. They have a minus five net rating. So I think those games, from what I remember, were mostly games where teams just kind of came back at the last second. So they weren't playing that well. And then they held it together for the most part. So they really have not been tested. They've played you know, clearly less clutch games than all the other main teams in the league. If you look at just all the teams in the top like 15, 16 in net rating in clutch scenarios, they've all had somewhere between you know, between 12 to 15 of those games. The Celtics just haven't really played any of those games. And I think that's one of the clear numbers where we see the, you know, where it shows they haven't really had too many tests so far in the last two months. Let's turn to Jalen Brown, somebody that I have been high on for a really long time and partially dealing with some injuries, including one that he sustained. Do we have any news on the injuries sustained against the Hawks? Yeah, he's just day to day. Um, 
you know, day to day, maybe week to week, who knows? But it's it's day to day. It's it's not it's not a severe one. So that that's good. And with Jalen Brown, like I, I hoped that you know he's going to keep building off of off of last year's All Star campaign. It hasn't quite been that, but I haven't like lost any faith in him. I just hoped he was going to take another step forward. And I was wondering if you've seen it more than I have because you watch this team a lot more than I do. Yeah, he. I think he he hasn't improved that much since last season. Mostly because he's just still not shooting the ball well. Both him and Tatum, for some reason, are still not shooting the ball well. And I don't think it's the chances being created because uh, they're missing a lot of open shots. They're, I mean, they do handle the ball more than they did even the year before. So maybe that's affecting it a little. But we've seen both of them hit, uh, miss a lot of open shots this year. And they're both they're shooting like two for eight on a routine basis. It's very bizarre. They'll have a lot of one for nine nights. It's really weird. They're just like these huge dud nights and then they'll have a good night somewhere in that week. But basically if, if Brown was shooting near 40%, which is what he's done most of his career, then I, I think everyone would look at him as he took another step forward. He's, he's turning into a superstar the way that Tatum is doing this year. Cause Tatum, at least while he's shooting poorly, he's the primary playmaker for this team. And he's in the last month and a half is doing a really good job with it. He's kind of taking that leap to being a good lead playmaker for you know, a fringe contending team. Jalen Brown has Jalen Brown, I think is turning into what you would want from your complimentary star in that, you know, he's, he's, you know, Tatum is an on ball wing. Tate, uh, Brown is mostly an off ball shooting guard. That's the way they've run this offense. I think it suits their skill set Well, and Brown, they don't put him in open pick and roll very often. They feed him the ball on the move a lot of the time, and he can get in the pick and roll from there, or he'll get the ball off of a handoff, and then he'll bounce out and reset into a pick and roll. He doesn't bring the ball down the floor and run it very often, even when he's out there without Tatum. So Brown has gotten good at when he gets that ball on the move and he's attacking or he's attacking a closeout, he's gotten pretty good at slipping a pass through the defense, stepping up to hit somebody in the dunker spot, which is how they use Rob Williams a lot of the time. He's gotten good at drawing two and then kicking out to the near guy. So the simple playmaking stuff he's doing pretty well, it's just not at the level where we're seeing Tatum drawing a double team out and then throwing an overhead cross-court pass at the corner, and he's finally starting to hit those kind of passes. So there is a difference in their playmaking capability. But Brown, he's he's been finishing inside pretty well this year. You know, he's he, his footwork has just gotten so good over the years where he's so agile. He's like a ballerina out there. He makes all sorts of spins, hops, stuff like that to change the way he's attacking. And that's really been his bread and butter his whole career. And I think that has looked really good this year. We also have seen Brown, as you mentioned, build on the complimentary playmaker part of it. Like the his his role within the offense as a as a passer has continued, and it's actually in- increased a little bit if you look at basketball references assist percentages before. And that's a positive sign. And maybe he's not your, you know, your every down guy running an offense. Also, they're not giving him the opportunity, so we're not necessarily sure there. But especially as you brought up the the shooting, like if that if that can get back to the level it was, then then it's a nice skill set, and then you can you can build off of that. And part of why I love the the original bet that Danny Ainge made on bet on talented wings is that if you need more creation from smaller players, you can get it. Like that's not it. it yeah, it can limit some of your defensive ceiling and everything else. But what I what I've always appreciated about Brown Tatum, especially as they've improved over the last two three years, is that you're you need that point guard less. You know the Kyrie Kemba, though you could still argue that if if any of those worked out, you know like all the circumstances that befell those two players, 
it would work, but you also have players that can kind of stand up on their own. And I, I think that it puts the Celtics in kind of a weird place of how do you build beyond here? And I want to talk about that in a bit, but it is a really nice foundation for a consistently competitive team. Yeah, I mean, that was the obvious difference between Stevens and Ainge here is that Stevens decided to just push down the middle of the road instead of doing what Ainge has done is generally keeping, you know, waiting for the ultimate opportunity to strike. They paid, they paid probably I would consider uh, not bad, bad values to turn that people have gotten mad at me for using, but like they, they overpaid in a lot of moves that they have made to get good veteran glue guys, Al Horford, that trade, you know, they gave up the pick that ended up being Shangun and Horford first half of the year is not working. Now it's working. He's actually playing pretty well. His shooting is getting a little bit better. He's not quite where they need it to be, but Horford's been really good. And he's definitely been a big part of their improvement so far. White, Josh Richardson in the first round pick and Romeo Lankford, who doesn't have much trade value, but still has the potential to be a talent, you know, a good player at some point, uh, potentially that would be at that point, I would be like, all right, that's a pretty good price to pay. But then 2028 pick swap, that is a huge risk. It's top one protected. So if this whole project with the Celtics doesn't work out, then there's a chance that they're a really bad team and they're losing a lottery pick there. Although, hey, maybe San Antonio's in the same place, too. But that's a really, really risky move they made there. But the point is, is that they are really buying into the Jays, Rob Williams, and I think still Marcus Smart. And they're saying, like, let's just put more really good players around them instead of just trying to get another superstar to put around those guys and hope you can fill out depth around that. And we're seeing that working so far. I mean, I think the main concern is that neither White or Smart is a reliable shooter and they're not really reliable finishers in the paint either. And they're both good playmakers. So you don't need an elite playmaker or an elite score next to Brown and Tatum because I think they're getting good enough that they can carry that mantle on their own. But it is really hard to win a playoff series when if, if they're closing games with White, Smart, and Rob Williams, there are no reliable shooters for Brown and Tatum to kick it out to besides each other. That's one big concern that I have for the Celtics is that you're right. That would be a really good thing for them to have. And unless you're the Miami Heat somehow, those players are very hard to find for low value. You know, like maybe yeah. you can maybe you can trade for somebody that's already generated. And also, we're seeing this a little bit with Duncan Robinson right now. It can be somewhat finicky. Like we've talked a lot about how over the years, you and I, but also like Nate and I, about how three and D players sometimes the three or the D is less is 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 less reliable than to like lock that in and so that's part of why those players can be less valuable even though the concept of them is extremely important and I would love to see Boston add a movement shooter and I also think that with the defensive foundation they have you can afford you can afford to put a less viable defensive player in the five I don't think you want more than one but choosing between a playmaker and a shooter, I think having both options would be a good thing for them. And it's a little bit unfortunate that they don't. There are not that many available who are also, let's say, even high rotation caliber players, you know, that can that don't have these severe enough weaknesses where the other things are a problem. And if you want them to have positional size, good luck with that. Those players are very hard to find, and the ones that are, exist are typically not moved very often. So that is a concern. That would be something that would make me feel a lot better about the Celtics and I don't know how you how you resolve that you so the Celtics you brought up the idea of the kind of like in a way aiming lower and I think part of that 
you know, thinking about this more as the like salary cap CBA nerd that I am, is you run into a problem. And Danny Angie, you, know, you could argue in certain ways he got out of Dodge before this really came home to roost, where what the it, Nate refers to it as the car driving off the lot problem, which is basically that once a pick is made, it is far more about how that player is, and generally speaking, uh, rival teams, unless a player really delivers, which does happen, of course, they would prefer to have the pick in in, conce- in concept, because then, then you could take whoever you want, and whether you're right or wrong, it's at least your choice. And part of what led to this real problem for the Celtics and their vaunted at one time war chest is that a lot of those converted into human beings who had a different kind of value. And I agree with you that Romeo Lankford could end up being a good player. I want to talk about Aaron Neesmith a little bit later because I find him really interesting. But once those players converted into picks and the picks didn't look like screaming deals, you know, you could make the same argument with Peyton Pritchard, who's had some nice moments, but, you know, it's like, is a team falling all over themselves to get them? Not not really. And so Boston, they ha- they are owed no first-round picks now in the future, and they don't want to trade their best players because their best players are the best players. So the way of getting that next, you know, like the third best player on the Celtics, I don't think there was a clear path to it unless you absolutely strike gold. And that's a possibility. So instead, focusing more on fourth and fifth best players is a natural shift. And well, the funny thing is, I think Rob Williams has played his way to the point that he actually does have decent centerpiece of a trade value. But the Celtics just didn't have that guy to build a clear star trade around, especially when you look at like Ben Simmons, what he just got. So and also Brad Beal earlier today saying that uh, it's fair to say that he is looking to sign his extension in Washington. It's in Dame Lillard with his health issues and Dame. I don't know if Dame would fit with Tatum and Brown uh, or or just with Tatum if they had to trade Brown. I mean, it would be I guess you probably would try it if you could. But like there, there wasn't really a clear opportunity out there for them to make a deal this upcoming summer. And so I do respect Stevens making the move in that sense. And I mean, this team right now is playing well enough that they have a legitimate chance at contending. It's just that between those moves and, and Daniel Tice, who is getting paid almost a bit level to sit that on the bench was right now. Dumbfounding. It was, I mean, the thing is, like, everyone likes Tice. And when Tice has gotten in the game so far, he's looked good. He's looked pretty close to the guy he was before. And so if he's performing at that level at the, at the salary he's making, then he's he's probably worth paying that much even for a backup center on a franchise that never wanted to pay for backup centers before. And I mean, I, I, everyone's assuming that they're going to move Al Horford in the offseason because they brought in Tice and then Tice is going to replace him in that role which would make sense. Uh, but if, if they're keeping Horford and Horford's playing pretty well, so you're not looking to dump Horford for nothing. I, I, I will phrase Horford. it this way. Horford is playing much better right now than I would expect Daniel Tice to play if that's what they wanted to do. Yes, I do agree with that. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't understand why they did that um, unless they really think they could move Tice again, which I assume they probably can unless they're giving up something. So that one was pretty confusing. I was shocked because Tice Part of it was just a really bad fit of Tyson Wood. I didn't expect it to be as as bad as it was, but it was a reminder of the weaknesses of both of those gentlemen. And I understood the bet that Rafael Stone made on giving giving a guy you thought was talented, giving him three years at below ten million a year. But it kind of seemed to me when when that trade happened that 
Brad Stevens just saw what happened this year and went, oh, well, I know what he is. I don't need to care about that at all. And Stevens could be right. And it's the weird thing about having a coach become a general manager and not be the coach anymore is that they have this evaluation of players. And you. there are times that it has worked out well. There are times that it has not. And I don't think they played, you know, I don't, first of all, they had more leverage. I mean, it seemed like Houston was very willing to get rid of Tice. And so to, to make that happen, but I, it, it was surprising to me. More with Jared Weiss in just a moment, but first a message from betonline.ag. Football might be over for the season, but basketball is in full steam for both pro and college hoops. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, BetOnline is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code CLNS50 to get started. That 50 is because of that 50% welcome bonus. And BetOnline is not just basketball. They are your source for hockey, boxing, UFC, plus Olympic coverage is best in the business. From sports right down to your Vegas favorite Vegas casino games, BetOnline is your number one online wagering destination. It's the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play your favorite games. BetOnline, where the game starts. Actually, there were there were two different threads I wanted to go to next, but we'll do, we'll do them in, in the order that makes more sense. And that's, I'm so thrilled for Robert Williams and a player that I've loved for a long time. I was really into, really into him as a prospect, thought that he had elite physical tools. And for that to have come together and it's not only like okay yeah he's technically if you want to say he has like a lower PER than last year whatever if that's if that's something you care about but he's doing it as a starter now like this is a fundamentally different circumstance and he has been great yeah I remember on draft night I got a text from somebody uh and I think in the Western Conference uh from a front office and they were so pissed off that Ainge got Williams because at the time the Celtics had a very strong player development reputation they were they were mining all this gold out of nowhere and so the person was like you know he he has a lot of red flags but put him in that development program and they're going to maximize his potential and it's crazy to think he was the was the 27th pick um and he's and he is just so over the top talented that's a big thing is he doesn't have much ball skill but everything else he's really good and i think what's so interesting about him is that he's a super athlete who also has really good balance and his balance was really bad when he first got to the league, and his reads were really bad, and that's really ironed out over the last year and a half. And the way he's been playing the last couple of months, he's been one of the best centers in the Eastern Conference. His usage is really low, so he doesn't. He basically puts up ten and ten. They really only lob him the ball. He doesn't get the ball very many other ways, and so there's still. I still think there's a few more onions to peel back in his skill set because he did have some post skill in college. He, you know, he, he there's he never has to do anything more than put up a hook or a layup. Like that's all he ever has to do, or dunk it, obviously. And so there's a lot more ways they can use him. And the big thing for him is he's a really good passer. They use him the pass on the roll, and there's been a few times they've operated him out of the high post, but. There's still a lot more they can do of trying to post him up in different areas, put the ball in his hands for dribble handoffs in different types of ways. There's still like another layer to unlock in his playmaking ability. So there's a lot of there's a, I think there's a lot of excitement in Boston because they figured out how to use him in the defensive scheme to maximize his potential there. And he's been a fringe elite defender, I think, this year. And offensively, he makes so many highlight plays, but he also there's a lot of ways in which he can be utilized to actually make him a fulcrum of the offense that they're starting to figure out. While right now he's mostly a finisher in the offense, and then just between that, his hustle, his willingness to dive on the floor, that's so great. And you just don't see a lot of like 
athletic centers that are willing to do that kind of stuff. I also love that he's making fewer like and this this is the natural thing, making fewer of the wild mistakes that Robert Williams made earlier in his career, the t- the time skips I believe is is what you called them. <laughs> um, have toned down at least a little bit you probably was time lapses time lapses yeah and and also like not making as many miscues defensively like, yeah he's become a very a very stout a very reliable defensive player and one thing i find really interesting when you look at the celtics kind of splits with and without robert williams is that they actually opponents are getting are making a higher proportion of their shots at the rim than you'd expect but one of the other ways that a rim protector can can affect things is not giving up many shots at the rim like those are kind of the two different parts of of the whole and the Celtics give up some of the one of the lowest proportions of shots around the basket in the entire league during that. And where most of those shots shift to is they give up they give up floaters. So that's that's typically a good measure of a deterrence effect. And sometimes they give up sometimes they give up long twos. And that's exactly what you want to do. So I, I think that the you can see some of that impact there and that amazingly when you consider where Robert Williams started his career, when Robert Williams is on the floor, the Celtics aren't fouling. They're, so he isn't fouling much. He isn't biting on up fakes. Not nearly as much. And that was the big thing was he lived in the air mostly because he was biting on pump fakes <laughs> all the time. He's gotten really disciplined about that. They really, really hammered home him being the second jumper whenever someone was trying to shoot because he loves blocking threes. And he was so excited that he was one of the only guys in the NBA that can block threes. But he got too excited about it, and guys are drawing fouls on him over and over and over. Guys are getting layups on him because they would just upfake him in the, on the block, and he would jump over them. It was ridiculous. And he's learned that he's so athletic, and he has such a quick leap, and he hangs in the air so much that he can just wait for the ball to be out of their hands. He can go up and get it. And he, I think he had a – did he have a block the other day where he grabbed the ball out of the air? It's just like a full-on grab out of the air. And it was, it was, it was in a manner – you know, we've seen – like uh, K- Kmart, like Kenny Martin would go up with two hands and just snatch the floater out of the air. He did it in a way where you just didn't even, it wasn't like the, the shot was going right up at to him. It's like he came in from behind and grabbed it out of the air in like a way that you just don't really ever see anybody do. And so I think he's just learned that he doesn't have to react to the defender. He has to, or the offensive player he has to react to the ball. And once he figured that out, it just, and realized he can just wait and wait and wait and he's going to catch up to it. That's when he kind of, took that next step as a five foot 11 person it's always funny for me to t- to like talk about how big men need to trust their size because it's something that but partially it's actually a small person thing to say to a tall person because i don't get to experience it but robert williams has become a great example of that of you brought up the second jumper he's so long and so bouncy and that you don't have to you don't have to beat the guy to the decision you have to beat him to the spot and so like you have a lot longer to react and doesn't need to bite on pump fakes, doesn't need to do all that, because you can wait until the offensive player commits and still affect everything that they're doing. And it makes a world of difference, not only for Williams individually, but for the Celtics overall, because the opponents are in the bonus a lot less, and you're not getting out of position. And those young players who have the enthusiasm for blocking shots, one part of it is the fouling, but something that gets lost sometimes in the shuffle is they often put the defense, their teammates, the other four, in a bad position to respond because you're now missing one of your important players, and generally the rest of the team is not as adept. Now, the Celtics at times have Al Horford out there who can do a better job of that, but also Robert Williams isn't putting them in that situation nearly as often. Yeah, I think the big thing is that they took him mostly out of the pick and roll coverage and he does a lot of the back line rotation right. help stuff helping out to the corners 
And I, I honestly think that by him not being engaged on ball as much, I think it's given him a better appreciation for how to play without trying to affect the ball overwhelmingly, like realizing that playing with his feet and playing, uh, trying to like get to the spots early and just stop the play is the way that he needs to be a defender because when he was in pick and roll coverages, it was all about sliding with the ball and just trying to keep the ball from getting to where he needed it to go. As opposed to now he can be, he can get to the spot where the ball wants to get to and then deter it that way, as opposed to trying to follow it and try to reroute it. And so he's realized that his timing is more important than his actual physical athleticism and posing. Where I want to transition is kind of a thought exercise. I don't want to focus to focus on the players that are on the roster, and I'll do this for a reason. Let's say, in the abstract, you have a team, and their foundation is Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Robert Williams. Let's say you're not adding a star-level player to that group. What skills and what skill sets would you be looking for to complement that group? A movement shooter that can switch two through four, which is what they don't have. A um, like a, I do think Marcus Smart or Derek White; those are ideal fits at the point next to those guys. I do I do think that. Um, not you, you. You don't really want two of those guys because of the shooting issue, but you do want someone who is a who is someone that doesn't need to run the entire offense through them. That isn't trigger happy, pulling up over the pick and roll. And that's going to do a ton of rebounding and loose ball diving and is going to be a real defensive leader. So I, I think I think they've done a good job with that. And then I would want a like I, I would want a, a Grant Williams type. You, you, you would want a four who can handle being the five who can also switch out and get caught on an island and do a decent job handling that against little guys. And then be a reliable shooter who can then crash the glass. So they do have most of the components that they're looking for out there. I think it's really just the movement shooter and having having a five that they can run pick and pop with. Because that's what I thought Horford was going to do this year. Because his pick and pop game was actually pretty fine last year in OKC. And that hasn't been the case. And Grant Williams, they don't use him a ton in pick and pop situations in crunch time. But I think that's something that he's getting better at that he can do. And obviously Rob Williams, they can't do that with him. They can't. And I agree with you on the movement shooter. We already talked about it. And for the other spot, I, I think of it as kind of you want to fill two different gaps. I probably practically not with the same person. So one of them is, as you brought up, the like player that can play on and off ball and ideally somebody that can that can defend at a reasonable level, like not not a sieve. And sure, it's great if they could be a Marcus Smart level defender, of course, like that, that's, that, that'd be great. And then the other thing, it hasn't worked out as well this year. I think you want a, a pure primary ball handler, but not somebody who you're giving a ton of equity to, but just somebody who can play like 20 minutes a game that you think will generate good shots, just as a, a, a person that can take some of the load off at moments in time. And that's another thing. Maybe Derek White can be that. I would, I, I don't love Marcus Smart in that capacity. I think he does a lot of other things well. That's just not what he does. And so it's more of a kind of a, a small, a small shift, but I wonder if they can, what, which of those boxes they can check, which of them can be done internally. And you brought up Grant Williams. I, I, I think that his growth has been extremely encouraging. And I mean, I wish that he could be more of a, like a, a, a more of a traditional five. Like he wish he had more of the schools than that, but he has done a couple things that are really important. One is his shooting. If it can stay anywhere close to this level, he has shot himself into being a power forward so that if he doesn't make it as a pure center defensively, you have that, but also he does a lot of the other things well defensively. And that's what you brought up in terms of switching and everything else. So you just have to have a different theory out there, but you can have a different theory and that's why it can work. 
anymore. Yeah, and I should say, I think the other player that I missed was a Will Barton type, a bigger athletic finisher that can play make a little bit. That would be very nice, yeah. Yeah, because they don't have any other finishers on the team. You know, uh, Rob Williams obviously is a good finisher, but he can't create his own finishing opportunities. Smart and White aren't really good at the rim. And then, obviously, Peyton Pritchard, Aaron Smith, that's a no. And then who am I forgetting? I mean, Horford doesn't really get to the rack well. Like there's there's nobody else that gets to the rack well. Um, there's nobody else that has a mid range uh, game that you can really rely upon. So having a Will Barton type, I think, would have been ideal. They really wanted Gary Harris from everything I've seen, and they were disappointed Gary Harris wasn't getting bought out. But the Magic were pretty steadfast on that, and that was surprising because. And we were all talking about Gary Harris like he was going to get cut because we just assumed that Magic would want to move on from him. But everything I'd heard is that the Magic are feeling pretty good about their young core at this point. They don't need to tank necessarily, so they'd rather just keep him around to build the culture and maybe even keep him around a little longer. So they got stuck without being able to find one of those wing guys. And that is something that they're probably going to really miss in the playoffs is just having another person that can get to actually finish when those two guys are off the floor, whether they're in foul trouble or whatever the case may be. So those are the things uh, that they probably would need more of because Grant Williams, to try to make a smooth segue, has done a little bit more finishing. But with him, it's mostly he spaces out and then he attacks. And what's good is he now can attack a closeout and actually play make off of it. And when we got to the season, he could maybe do one dribble and then he had to try to make a pass or even pick it up. And last year, he was picking it up a lot and it was getting ugly. And this is the year where he has flipped that switch and he's been just like Derek White is doing and like Marcus Smart has always done um, or invariably done is he's an important part of keeping the ball moving and they can get the ball out to the corner and they can get the ball back out of the corner if the defense does a good job with it. And that was the thing that killed them last year was whether it was Shemi Ojale, one of their young guys, Grant, the ball would swing to the corners and the play would shut down and guys would have to come over and help bail them out. And this team has not had to do that for a couple months now. And I think it's a big part of why they're winning the game. And Grant has just gotten better there and is just a touch on his defense real quick. He handles switches out on on an island, but he is a good communicator and he makes good reads to know when to switch and when not to switch. And he just generally can handle wings like they can put him at the four where he's mostly covering a wing or another four. And he's doing a pretty good job with that. He is, and that's an ext- it's encouraging to see kind of where he fits in a rotation. I think of Williams, I want to see if you agree with this, I think of him more as a valued ro- rotation player rather than a starter, and there's no shame at that. I mean, he was you know taken taken late in the first round and is a talented player, but do you do you see starter potential in there? I think he's, you know, I think he's like P.J. Tucker, and he actually, he might be able to do a few little things uh, that P.J. Tucker doesn't do as well uh, offensively, but... In general, I think that's the guy that he's always been compared to. I mean, they both went to Tennessee, um, the, you know, similar builds and styles, and he's doing pretty pretty similar to the same thing P.J. Tucker's doing in Miami this year. They're both neck and neck for the shooting lead, uh, three-point shooting lead uh, this year, and I mean, P.J. Tucker is, has been an elite defender that can take on the toughest guys reliably and do the whole gamesmanship thing and the, you know, the, the mental wars that come in the playoffs. We've seen that. Grant, I think, has the makeup to do it, so I could see that happening for him down the road. Uh, but I, I think that kind of guy, a lot, a lot of championship teams will have that guy who's limited on the ball, doesn't really fit the traditional ideal prototype of the position, but they shoot the ball well, and they're super smart, and they work their ass off, and that makes them a, an effective starter. And I do think Grant can certainly become that kind of guy. And we're seeing the team has been pretty good when they close games with them. 
That is an important wrinkle in this, and I want to see how that evolves over the course of the rest of the season. Like, what do you what do you think makes the most sense as their closing five, as currently constructed? Uh, White, Smart, Brown, Tatum, Rob. There's going to be a lot of nights where Grant's going to close instead of that. Uh, Horford doesn't seem to be closing anymore. They're I think it's if there's defenses that are going to pack the paint, then it makes the most sense to have Grant spacing to the corner because you're going to get him a lot of shots. Teams that are doubling Tatum, we saw in that Atlanta game, they closed out that game because Grant was spacing to the corner. Tatum was drawing that double. Smart would make some uh, smart cuts to try to draw another help defender out of that weak side corner. Grant Williams was wide open for three, and he's gotten really good at catching and firing that thing off from that corner. So. I wouldn't be surprised if Grant Williams is closing a lot of these games, but I think it's really scheme dependent just the way like I thought it was when Josh Richardson was in Boston. And it was really what does the matchup dictate that night, whether to close with Richardson or Williams. The last big thread that I wanted to get at is looking looking forward now. There will be a lot of important basketball between now and then. What what happens in the playoffs and I mean there's so much variability in the in the Eastern Conference with all of these teams and what the seeding is going to be, what the matchups are going to be, and I, I hope that each of these franchises doesn't read too much into the result because there's going to be a lot going on and Styles makes fights and all that kind of stuff. But what I what I'm thinking about is kind of gaming it out a little bit beyond this year. And I want to appreciate this year for what it is and the Celtics are are firmly in this mix and that's super exciting there are kind of two different elements of this so one is are there players that are currently not in the rotation or that can really take steps up we've talked about tatum and brown and williams of course but like somebody like aaron neesmith or you know other other young guys now langford is gone and then the other one is do you think and I guess this is the juicer one, so we can start there. Do you see Derek White and Marcus Smart as being long-term complementary or eventually kind of one replacing the other? I would be surprised if they kept both of those guys long-term because they're just so similar. And maybe this year they'll demonstrate that they can win with both of them together, but it's just hard to imagine winning, uh, w- winning the title with a team that has – only two reliable shooters out there, both of whom are shooting the ball really poorly. The Jays are like, there's nobody in the Celtics starting lineup that shoots the, or uh, actually there's nobody in the Celtics rotation that is shooting the ball. Well, except for Grant Williams, who is a stationary spot up shooter right now who may, you know, might start to improve there. I'm sure next year that's the, the, the next year is about turning him to a pick and pop guy and movement shooter more, whatever. But right now there's just no reliable shooters for this team, which is why as well as they're playing, even if it holds up through this really tough, March schedule, I would still be, I would still put them down below teams, you know, some of the top teams in the East as for the, you know, favorite to get out of the East. Uh, just because they just like teams are going to be good enough in, in the playoffs to take them out of what they're trying to do and they're going to, or teams are going to load up and force them to take open shots. And they just have shown that they're just not a good enough shooting team to pull that off. So, Unless they see that they're really competitive this year, I wouldn't be surprised if next year they try to move off of one of those two guys. And then Smart, I mean, Smart smart and White are both locked in long term, so it's not like they have to make that decision right away, but... Brown, you know, Brown's halfway through his contract, so like they have to they they have to win before his contract's up. Or otherwise, I wouldn't be surprised to see him go somewhere else. White, for the full context, there, Derek White, three years after this season, Marcus Smart, four with his extension. Also, Smart is a very small trade kicker, but that doesn't really matter. And you brought up Jalen Brown's timing here, so he will be a free agent in twenty four twenty five in the summer of twenty twenty four, absent an extension. And I always focus on the third contract. Like I wrote a piece 
God, it was probably more than 10 years ago now at Real GM talking about how that is such an important differentiator in the NBA because that is the first opportunity for high-end players to really show what they value. That is when LeBron James left Cleveland for Miami. That is when Kevin Durant left. That is when various other players, including Damian Lillard, have stayed. And there were those murmurs around the trade deadline that it was like, oh, if, if you know, if Jalen Brown, if, if things aren't going well, he might be the voice that could that could lead them out. Oh, that could, that could, you know, like maybe he would he would want his way out. And he wields some real power here in not only the immediate but also in the like kind of longer term immediate because. As a practical consideration, it is so risky to be a year away, which is not where he is now, but it's where he will be roughly a year from now, from unrestricted free agency if you are not convinced that a player is coming back. And some of that will be clarified by when Brown becomes, like, like the extension eligibility windows that exist. But some of that is also just having these fundamental conversations. And the other challenge for Brad Stevens, for Ime Udoka, and of course for Jalen Brown, is that he might not know what he wants right now. And he doesn't have to. He is under no obligation to anybody to make that decision. But being competitive this year and next is extremely important for the Celtics trying to make sure that he's on their page. Yeah, there's nothing that I've gotten from Brown's camp that indicates that he's looking to leave. But he's right now they're in a upward swing after they you know they they made a huge upward swing early in his career before he was ready to lead it and then right and then you know that that year in the bubble they were really really good and you know if gordon hayward never went down they would have had a really good chance of winning the title and they got they still got pretty close even with all that and so last year was just such a dud it was just such a mess that they needed to i think it was that coming into the season it didn't look like they were making a clear step forward in last in like last season, the way that they cleared the deck and having to get rid of Kemba Walker and all that kind of stuff. It just seemed like they, that, that last season where they were playing all these young guys, it was a year to take a step back, develop, and then take a big leap forward the next year. And they didn't do that with their, at least with their off season transactions. And so up until the last month, it just hasn't felt like they, it felt like they were stuck. Like they were completely stuck. And they made this nice, this really nice little run before the trade deadline that gave you some optimism, but it was too small of a sample size, and they weren't really beating great teams. And so, you know, and, and like their net rating, while their net rating is, they're, they're, I think they have the best net rating in uh, the East, and they've had the best uh, in 2022. Like they had a 50 point win over the Kings. Like they've had some insane wins that definitely inflate that to a to a degree. But every top team has that to a certain degree. So I don't think it's it doesn't create an outlier situation, but. Basically, when that chatter was happening with Jalen Brown, it, I mean, the stuff that was coming out was the same stuff I was saying before the season, which is just that once you know, nobody wants their star who things haven't been working with well to get to a lame duck situation. So that obviously applies to Jalen Brown. And there's been some murmurs about I, th- I think the thing is, whatever murmurs there are about Jalen Brown, people don't J- Jalen Brown is one of those pretty hard to know kind of guys he you know he's he does say a lot actually publicly but he doesn't really reveal a lot about what he um you know what his what his thinking is long term necessarily he's very much he very much portrays himself as an in the moment guy and so and he doesn't really seem to be very motivated by off the court stuff he doesn't do much marketing was, he just has his own brand and that's pretty much it it's different than jason tate who was a ton of commercials and has very much become an off-the-court star that isn't really jalen and so the question is does jalen want to go somewhere where he has a better chance of doing that because like shit man tatum's the star in the, in this city like it's it's pretty clear that he is that guy whether it's you know if it was just based on their play solely 
I don't know if it would be so much that, but it's the marketing behind him. It's the fact that his son is like more famous than he is now. And that's a huge part of his off court success. And it's, it's really created this feeling that Tatum is the face of the franchise because he is such a face off the court in different ways compared to Jalen. But Jalen also does a lot of stuff in the community and stuff like that. So you know, it's not like it's a drastic difference, but I do think Tatum having the uh, being the all star starter and having the commercials and all that stuff creates that perception, especially outside of the city. And so it definitely seems plausible that at a certain point, if the team's not winning, Brown may decide I should go somewhere else where I can kind of have that that public identity. Or maybe there's a different motivator, whether it's a different role in the city that he's in, a political thing of something of that nature. You know, there's a lot of different things that he could be interested in. But so if he's going to I don't think he's going to leave, though, unless it's a it's a basketball decision because the money is going to be there. Like he's already he clearly he's being underpaid now because he's not getting the max now. He's probably going to be good enough that he'd be worth the full max at that point as well. And he's probably not going to qualify for the super max unless I, something I don't changes. think so. Yeah. So, yeah, he could be in that circumstance where he's just you know 30 percent wherever and yes boston can offer more years they can offer they can offer higher raises the other practical challenge of it is and this comes up every few years there's a circumstance where it's like okay well what would happen beyond this point and it's like well for boston's perspective do i think that jalen brown is untradeable no I, I think that there you could think of a circumstance for boston where they could there's a move involving jalen brown that makes the celtics better Sure, it's possible. I mean, for me, the amount of players that are truly untouchable is like four in the entire NBA. I know a lot of people say it, and it can be functionally higher because of guys' connections to the team or the city. do, Do you think Tatum is untouchable? No. I don't think he should be. I think he might be practically to, to Brad, but that's a that's a different conversation. Mine is should be rather than are. Uh-huh. And to me, to me, that's it's just because let's say another team went in a different direction. You know, like that the it's the unquestioned like best player in a championship team. Like to me, that's the kind of the the threshold yeah. for that. And Tatum, as good as he's been, he hasn't been that guy. And I hope that he gets there. He isn't there. So is it possible? Yes, but. The practical consideration is, let's say, the like, what would a Jalen Brown offer look like? And this came up in the Ben Simmons situation, which ended up kind of in some ways crystallizing this challenge, because most often when a trade happens involving a talented player, especially when they're older, but even when they're on the younger side, and I mean, Jalen, this is his age 25 season, he'll turn 26 right around the start of next season. Typically, that's you trade good player for younger players and and or assets you know so like you could talk about the paul george for oladipo and sabonis or various other other kind of deals in that range i don't think boston has any interest in that you know like they're very good right now and unless another team just bowls them over like i've the 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 funny part of this is like i've been saying for about six months now that's like memphis should try their damnedest to make that sort of offer to boston but also boston probably shouldn't take it and so that leads us down this road of unless there's a clear line of communication, a clear decision by Jalen Brown that is then conveyed to the Celtics, I think they're just going to hold on for another couple of years. And then and then maybe, maybe in 23, if somebody has made a decision by that point, you do something. But I don't think you do anything before then. And I would be surprised if they did anything before then. Yeah, they uh, there's just 
I don't see anybody out there they could get that's going to be better than Jalen Brown. Exactly. And I remember the Memphis package being floated around was basically Desmond Bain and Dylan Brooks. And these guys are good. And hey, I mean, look at how good Memphis is this year. They're a lot better than Boston. Um, although we'll see what happens in tonight's game. But I don't think that that's that that makes any sense for them. So also, I'll, I'll note Memphis has a lot of they have a lot of like kind of late first round pick things. They have, you know, like they have a couple from like from the Jazz and their own and they have a couple bonus things moving forward. But none of them are like blue chip eventual assets. Their their yeah. best their best resources are their are some of their current players. It just doesn't make because I'm not a believer in the trade a guy for seven picks thing. I, I if, unless you're convinced that the team giving you those picks is going to be bad and you know New Orleans hit with the Lakers is looking promising because they were betting on AD who was injury prone pairing up with a guy that was in his mid 30s. So I like what they did there. And also it's the Lakers. You know the Lakers are going to find some way to screw it up long term anyway. But so. It's hard to imagine a Jalen Brown trade where you're you're getting a team who's giving you a bunch of picks in the future at a time where they're very likely going to be bad, especially because you'd be trading Jalen Brown right ahead of his prime. So it's it's really hard to find a way to make a deal work there. Uh, and so and uh, Jalen Brown is, I think, already too good to want to jump ahead of moving him, especially because you don't think he's going to qualify for the Supermax. If it was that situation and you think you're not going to be able to retain him because of that, then I at least could see them wanting to jump ahead and try to trade him when the value is highest. But otherwise, I don't really I just don't envision it. Yeah, I think I think we're in the same boat there. Anything else Celtics or broader NBA that you want to discuss? I mean, we were talking about them not having movement shooters. They just signed Matt Ryan to a two-way deal. So, you know, maybe we need to issue a correction. But otherwise, I think we're good. I want to see, and this is more, I guess, about next year than this year. I want to see what Brad Stevens does at kind of the, the bottom end of this roster. You know, like, because remember, they cleared a billion roster spots in this in, in their trade deadline deals. Can they get one or two low-end rotation players or even better than that out of those spots? Because that makes a world of difference. In Boston, they have a complicated bet dance in terms of the luxury tax for next year because a lot of that centers on the Al Horford situation and then whether they can use the full mid-level. They still technically have the Evan Fournier trade. No, the Evan Fournier trade exception is gone now, right? No, it's still there. It's a sign. No, it's trade. still there. Yeah, they didn't there. use it for the Richardson deal. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, they have a billion trade exceptions. Like Bobby Marks and Keith Smith have had that before. So they they, they have a, a ways to bring in other players. And so w- those sorts of decisions are not going – I don't think that's going to determine – whether they win a championship or not, but it could determine it could end up being very important in terms of how many regular season games they win and maybe a round or two in the playoffs, depending on how well that player works out. Yeah, it's very possible that they can throw they can once again throw a couple first round picks and use a trade exception to get that that kind of comp that other finisher or movement shooter that we're talking about. And that's the missing piece that gives them just enough because especially because this team they're winning with Tatum and Brown just not shooting the ball that well while they've been shooting the ball really well up until this point in their career. So those guys are hot. I mean this team this team might actually be right, you know, knocking on the door of contention there and their advantage over some of these other teams that they're competing with is just that they have the best eight man rotation for the playoffs out of all those teams with depth. So that 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 certainly could be their move. I think what's good for them is that Grant Williams, they can probably retain him on a pretty reasonable extension. That's you know somewhere in the mid-teens. If, I think that's probably what they're looking for there. So you already have Rob Williams locked into what's clearly a below-market deal at this point. It's like twelve to fourteen million based on the bonus structure. Like that, that already looks like a pretty absurd deal. So you have him and Jalen Brown locked into good deals. 
you know, smart, smart. Some nights looks like he's worth 23 million. Some nights he's worth, looks like he's worth 14 million. So I guess he's kind of right in between those. But so basically you have a young core that's getting underpaid or could be getting underpaid relatively. And then if either Peyton Pritchard or Neesmith hit, which I would be surprised at this point, but maybe, maybe at the end of the season, they start to show something and they actually carry that on. Then you, you have a lot of flexibility with how you want to try to utilize that trade exception and utilize your picks and probably move off of someone like Horford or whatever. But they, you know, I, I think that at this point, abandoning the picks makes sense because they are likely going to be in the mid twenties for the foreseeable future. If this is a stepping stone for them right now, and they at least have the trade exception to try to get somebody pretty good. One other thing I wanted to mention before we, before we head out for the second consecutive year, pick and roll ball handler per synergy is Jason Tatum's most used play type. He's actually doing it less as a proportion of possessions. Second year, he's in the like 73rd, 72nd percentile in terms of efficiency. That's very good. Like the, the, the idea that like he has grown into this fascinating player who, isn't quite any of the archetypes but is also very good at just about everything and if the three-pointer issue as we talked about at length earlier if that comes back to the levels that we expect from him like it's a different type of star player but it's a very interesting one i mean i i feel like he's kind of following Kawhi's template pretty well i think i I think of Kawhi as a more dominant isolation player but it's not it's a variant on that theme at least that's fair yeah well he's he's 24 right or he just turned 24 today so it's like he's way wait he's not 16 uh, he's he turned 19 and a half today there we Um, go and so uh happy 19th birthday again to him but so i i but I, i think that he he's similar to Kawhi in a lot of ways Kawhi just has a He's a much like I mean Kawhi. I feel like is kind of the best of both Jalen and Jason, which is why he's Kawhi Leonard. Um, it's why he's one of the best players of our generation. But Tatum has fulfilled a lot of that stuff where he does a lot of subtle stuff. He's he, this series shown the patience and the control, which is the thing that makes Kawhi so incredible. And he's show he's shown a big stride in that, which was the thing he didn't have a lot of before. I think before you know, when he got to the league, he had this massive package of finishing moves and and, and moves to try to get open. And for him, it's been about kind of getting away from those moves and simplifying his game. And that's what made Kawhi so great was that he made such a simple yet effective game for himself. And that's why I really like Tatum's ceiling. I still see him as a potential MVP caliber player. I mean, if he was shooting the ball well this year, he'd probably be pretty close to that anyway right now. But I still see him on track to get there in his prime because he's just shown that his, his the, the mental side is really his biggest strength. It's not the pull-up three anymore. It's not the great mid-range game, which he hasn't he hasn't really been that great with either of those things this year it's that he's just really thinking the game now and he's resilient and he's healthy and he plays a ton he doesn't get hurt he plays 40 minutes a night when they need him to and he's really high usage on frankly both ends of the ball and he's and he, he's pretty reliable now like the the big lapses of intensity the moments where he's just taking ridiculous shots early in the clock stuff like that selling out that's gotten so much better he's still he's gotten back to i've noticed lately not getting back in transition because he's upset about not getting a foul call and that was really affecting him and the team earlier this year and i wrote a few times about that that's kind of creeping in a little bit but i do think he generally turned that off a lot this year and that's gotten better so i just think he has the mental makeup that makes me believe in him and also his arms are absurdly long i want to see how it all translates in the playoffs and that ties me into the last question i was just thinking about this and i'm like i should ask jared before we get off i want to take out well i'll take out the bulls rap celtics so bulls raps Cavs, not celtics obviously and the nets are kind of their own thing we're still trying to figure out what in the world they are ben simmons will be back at some point presumably who knows um 
so let's narrow the field to the Heat, the Sixers, and the Bucks. Of that trio, who do you think the Celtics should most and least want to face whatever round it would occur in? I've been I've been getting the impression Miami is a team that they want to face the most because Miami is kind of similar to them in the the way that they rely on their depth and their scheme should work pretty decently against Miami. They, they've built now their backcourt to be able to switch around on Jimmy Butler or Tyler Hero and be able to keep a defender that works with him. And they should be able to handle Bam out of bio pretty well with their defensive scheme. So. I mean, the only thing is now they're switching and they're going up against the master of the switch and Eric Spolster in that matchup. So Spolster probably could figure out how to beat that scheme better than anybody. So I do think Miami is their most desired, except that just Milwaukee has been struggling so much lately that you, you know, you wonder if they aren't as dangerous as you thought they were. But otherwise, like they don't match up that well against Giannis and Milwaukee is the defending champs and the when they're at their best, they're clearly at their best. And then Philadelphia, Philly is still a wild card, but I imagine the Embiid hard and pick and roll is going to be the deadliest thing in the NBA once they kind of get it figured out more reliably. And so I don't know if I don't know if anybody wants to try to take that on. But Philly, their supporting cast might not be good enough to be able to make them a, a dangerous favorite. But I, I just I imagine that Harden and Embiid together is going to be unbelievable in the playoffs. A Sixers Celtics series would be fascinating because I think both teams are not particularly well situated to handle to defending what the other team does best. You know, like so yeah, Philly is going to have. Yeah. Well, Embiid standing around the rim. I don't think Boston cares. I don't think they care that much. And you can get him out on the floor a little bit with some of the Robert Williams stuff. And you're going to have to change everything for Joel Embiid in the first place. But as you mentioned, the like the possibility that Harden Embiid is just the most devastating two man two man set in the entire NBA is eminently possible. We've seen it do really well against lower-end opponents, and we're going to get a really early preliminary look at how it's going to look against better opponents very soon. So I think that's a fair ranking, and the concept of depth with all of these teams is so potentially important where like Miami, they have a lot of really good players, but they have a lot of players, especially once you get outside their top ones that have specific flaws. And so Spo is better than damn near anybody at hiding those flaws and accentuating strengths. But how much how hero and Duncan Robinson on defense can Boston with having so many guys that are confident with the ball in their hands can they do what they did in the second half against Atlanta against a team like that yeah I mean the big thing is the reason why Boston started winning was that Udoka went to an eight-man rotation and just played they only have eight good players on the roster and he went to those eight good guys I mean Tice I don't know what Tice's uh, role is going to be in the playoffs but Grant Williams has been a good two-way guy this year. Derek White, obviously a good two-way guy. They, you know, they know that they can go to a seven and a half, eight-man rotation and just only keep good players out there the entire time. And they were not being, they were not able to do that earlier in the year. And they were just having these huge, they were having these moments where they were falling off a cliff, and that's not happening to them anymore. And maybe that's their strength over everybody else. It's just that they're not going to really have a weak point you can attack defensively. They're not going to have somebody that can't do anything with the ball offensively. They're always going to have someone that can either move the ball or can shoot it. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure. That was fun. Thanks again to Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Love having him on, and I find the Celtics such a significant, fascinating story at this stretch in the season, and it'll be another 
two months until we can know exactly how we feel about it, but love talking about it with Jared. And if you want to support the show, there are so many different ways that you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that is super important for Real GM Radio in particular, because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. It depends on my availability and guests and whatever podcast player you use, you can do that. And you can also leave a rating and a review in that podcast player and help other people find the show. You can also use word of mouth, social media, wherever. If you think people like a specific episode or the show in general, really appreciate that. And then the single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is Bet Online. Use the CLNS50 code to get a 50% welcome bonus and importantly, tell them that you came from us. You can also check out my other work. Nate and I are going strong with Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, five episodes a week. I think technically now it's six. And then we're also doing Spotify Green Room. And so those you can check in on. We're doing those typically Tuesdays at 3 Pacific, 6 Eastern. The timing can shift a little bit. You can check on Twitter and all that. And of course, the NBA strategy stream, which is every Monday. That is Nate and I broadcasting on League Pass. You can watch the game and listen to our commentary. You can check that out. We have a really great schedule for the remainder of the year. This coming Monday's game is Utah at Dallas, a rematch of such a fascinating game just a couple weeks ago, and that's 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific. So hope you can join us for that, and we'll be doing that Mondays throughout the rest of the year. And my written work is at The Athletic, did a piece, uh, team-by-team cap breakdown. I have a couple other things in the work. Nothing nothing submitted to editorial yet, but now that I'm pretty much done with my pods for the week, you can check that out as well, because now I can actually start writing more. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. I try to get back, but I admit that I'm not the greatest at that, but I do read everything. I read it every day. There's a spot it goes in my inbox, and it's one of the things in my routine. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 